Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 146th show. Today's guest is Ruth, uh, is it Gautian? Gautian. Gautian, author of The Success Factor. Ruth, welcome. Hey, everyone. <laughs> and I should have said Dr. Ruth, uh, but if I said that, for some of us, they might think something else. <laughs> She's a great lady, and uh, we have a lot of things in common. We actually got our doctorates from the same school, and uh, we were both in our 40s when we got it, and we're both bilingual in the same languages, but she's a sex therapist, and I'm not. <laughs> That's right, and uh, so I didn't want to get people confused about that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background uh, for the audience? Sure. Hey, everyone. My name is Dr. Ruth Gotian. I am hailing to you from New York. I... Um, had like most people a very windy road. I actually started my career in finance and international banking. And I did that for a couple of years. My first two degrees were in business. And I figured that's what you're supposed to do if you're a business major. And then I realized you could be really good at something and not enjoy it. So I went back to my first love, which was higher education. But previously I had worked with undergrads. I wanted to work with grad students who had more to lose. So I went into academic medicine and for over two decades, I ran a combined MD PhD program, which means my students got both the MD and PhD degrees simultaneously in eight years. And it was there that I started becoming really obsessed with success because this program um, had just a three and a half percent acceptance rate. And yet we were seeing people who sacrificed so much leaving the profession. And I said, well, while everyone is studying those who are leaving, I'm much more curious than those who are staying. And how can we make more incredible people? So at the age of 43, I went back to school to get my doctorate. And I've been studying success specifically in high achievers ever since. And then a year ago, I wrote the book, The Success Factor. And, uh, that's that's what I do. I interview astronauts and Nobel Prize winners and Olympic and NBA champions and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies to figure out what has made them so successful. And here we are. Just the most boring people in the world you end up having to interview. <laughs> I get to hang yeah. out with some pretty amazing people. <laughs> yeah, I love the book um, because Thank everybody you. is interested in what makes these people tick and how they got to be who they are. And, you know, a lot of us have watched the Michael Jordan uh, documentary and see how driven he was, not nice, but super driven and super successful. What, why did you write this book? What, I mean, we're all interested, but what drove you to be so interested in this? So I think it was really um, a few things that had happened. My original research was on the most successful physician scientists of our generation. And that's how I got to meet um, a lot of the Nobel Prize winners and people like 
Dr. Tony Fauci, former Surgeon Generals. And a few years after, I met with one of the Surgeon Generals uh, with Dr. David Satcher. He was during the Clinton administration. And I was telling him about the results of my research. And he said, Ruth, you, you've got to publish this. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. There'll be academic articles. He said, no, you need to write a book about this. I said <laughs> to the Surgeon General, I said, with all due respect, who would be interested in this? He said, trust me, I was a Surgeon General. People will be interested in this. I said, I hear your warning, sir. Um, I'll take that under advisement. And that was sort of in the back burner for a few years. Um, and then in March 2020, just as the pandemic rolled around, just a few months prior, I had written a, a textbook on medical education. And I got a call that my father was in the hospital. I should come quick. So I stuffed the book into my bag, um, flew over to see him, gave him the book. And as we're sitting in the hospital, he said, are you getting ideas for your next book? Because I was sitting on my laptop. And I said, no, I'm trying to figure out how to keep you alive. And when he passed away in August 2020, a week later, a publisher reached out to me and they said, we've been following your work because I, I write for uh, Forbes, Psychology Today and Harvard Business Review, in addition to all the academic papers. And they said, we'd like to talk to you about a book. And that was the beginning of the success factor. And it was published 17 months to the day of the funeral, my dad's funeral. Well, sorry so. for your loss about your dad. And I'm sorry Thank that your you. dad didn't get to see your book come out. I'm sure he, like my dad was, my dad's also passed away, but he got to see the books when they came out. So again, sorry for your loss. So what interested you in leadership development and success? I've always been interested in why certain people achieve those leadership roles and other people don't? And why do certain people achieve those leadership roles and then they're not really good at it? But then there are certain people who are exceptional at it. So we all talk about what makes a good leader, but how many people have actually studied those best of the best leaders and looked at what's below the waterline, right? But we always talk about the tip of the iceberg. I'm interested in what's below the waterline because I knew that if we could produce more of those people, we could be more innovative, more creative, more productive and improve the bottom line. And it's just been an, a, an obsession. I've been obs a healthy obsession with success for a very long time. Uh, so what's the common denominator between the astronaut, the Nobel Prize winner, the NBA basketball player? I, I love the yeah. cross-section of people that you interviewed. Yes. And isn't it interesting that the Nobel Prize winning scientist is identical to the bedazzled Olympic champion figure skater? And that's really, to me, what is the most profound we're always told to copy other people's habits, right? Wake up at 5 a.m. and make your bed and you know, read eight hours a day because leaders are readers, but that's copying other people's habits, but our lives are not the same as theirs. So we can't copy their habits. And that's when I realized that when all of these incredible people had such alignment with their mindsets, I said, mindsets, we can definitely emulate. So what I realized, the, the four mindsets that they had was the first one is they found something that they're good at but they 
also were incredibly, incredibly passionate about it. It's what we call in adult learning, their intrinsic motivation. They were not fueled by the awards, rewards, diplomas, promotions. In fact, almost all of the Olympic champions who I interviewed do not have their Olympic medals on display. I always ask to see them and, you know, it's in a nightstand. It's, it's in a, it's in a safe. Apollo Ono had it in a brown paper bag in a sock drawer. (laughs) Um, But they all said to me, it wasn't about the medal, right? That's a chapter in my life, not the entire story. So we need to find not just what we're good at, right? We could be good at a lot of things. Apollo Ono, for example, the short track speed skater was actually a swimmer, a state champion swimmer before that, but he didn't love it. So you need to find something that gets you out of bed, right? And also why you can't quiet your mind at night because you're so fueled by it. So that's the first one. The second one is how you approach challenges. So Dr. Peggy Whitson was, um, she is a biochemist and she worked at NASA for many, many years And she applied to be an astronaut and she was rejected and she applied again and was rejected. And this went on for 10 years. Now, I don't know about all of you, but if I was rejected, I don't know that I would reapply, let alone for 10 years. But she said, I never questioned if I would become an astronaut. I always focused on how. What is the strategy I haven't thought of yet? And it's because of that mindset that she ultimately went on to become an astronaut. She got accepted. She spent more days in space than any American astronaut of any gender. She became the first female commander of the International Space Station, a role she's held twice. And ultimately, this astronaut who was rejected for 10 years went on to become NASA's chief astronaut. So it's never a question of if, it's a question of how. And you have to be able to view challenges in that way and obviously do the work that's leading toward that. Now, the the third one is what I called a strong foundation, which you're constantly reinforcing. It's those basic techniques, those basic methods that made you who you are. You continue to do it even after you've become so successful. I shared the story of Neil Katyal, was a lawyer who argued 48 cases before the Supreme Court of the United States, more than any other minority lawyer. Most lawyers don't argue one. He's argued 48. He has the same three practices he does before every single case, which is prepare a binder that has the answer to every possible question you can get asked. Um, It is have multiple moot courts. These are simulated court environments. And The night before the opening arguments, his kid's bedtime story become those opening arguments because he said, if a child can understand it, the court will understand it. And last but not least, and this is actually a text I just sent right before we we logged on. Um, Zaza Pachulia, who is a two-time NBA champion. He posted online uh, the other day that he was taking a class, an entrepreneurial class, entrepreneur class at Stanford Business School. So I texted him and he was telling me his motivation behind it, um, et cetera. And I said, now he obviously retired from the NBA. He was with the Golden State Warriors. And I said, 
you know, the fourth element of success is that you are a lifelong learner and you are always willing to learn from other people. They can be senior to you at your level or junior to you. And by taking this class at Stanford, because here's something you wanted to get good at, and there was a gap in your knowledge, and you went to figure out who's the best person who can teach this to me, you have just proven that fourth element of success. And that is why you will continue to be so successful. So those are the four. about the astronaut. What did she learn that changed it for her? Like 10 years of trying to climb that mountain and she finally got to the top of it and and, and became maybe the most successful of anybody in that yeah. in that profession. What did what what changes did she kind of make along the way and what did she learn? Well that's a very long story. That could take up the the whole hour. <laughs> But it's, you know, it's everything about what they're looking for and how they're looking for it um, and to make sure that she is in that peak performance, that you can be a leader and a follower at the same time. Because remember, you are living and working with the same people for weeks at a time. And remember how much trouble we all had doing that at the beginning of the pandemic? Imagine you had to do that all the time in very, very tight quarters. So she had learned all of these things that astronauts need to excel in. And she made sure that she excelled in it and had proven over and over again that she can excel in it. Uh, So what's the formula for becoming a thought leader? Everybody, especially in business, right, wants to be a thought leader, I guess, in most of the academic world as well. But what's the formula for being a thought leader? That's such a that's such a funny question because um, in the introduction of the book, I write about my time. Um, I was a grad student at Columbia, and a classmate asked me. He said, "Well, what do you want to do when you finish your degree?" We were discussing that, and you know, I threw around some ideas, and he said, "Well, what do you want to? What are you a thought leader in?" And I said, "What's a thought leader? I didn't even know what a thought leader was." And he said, it's something you're uniquely qualified to do, that people will come to you for your expertise. And that's when I realized that there are a lot of people who are thought leaders on the same thing. And that's okay. We can actually learn from each other. So I think to be a thought leader, you have to figure out what it is that you're uniquely qualified to do. Figure out who else is uniquely qualified to do that. And this is, I think, the step most people don't do. Work with them because by collaborating with them, you will learn from them. So when I do work on high achievers and mentoring, there's only about half a dozen of us in the entire country who do this kind of work and we collaborate and write papers all the time. And then make sure to get your content out there because you could be a thought leader, but if nobody knows it, you're not a thought leader. What was the Michael Lewis book about the two psychologists that work together that I think exactly um, does that? Do you know what that book was? No. It's about that. They're both like Nobel Prize winners. What we can come back. Are you, t- are you talking about Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman? Uh, yeah. The Economist? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Great that's book. A, a perfect example of what you're uh, talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, a question from the audience, being a lifelong learner and being able to preserve needs, uh, lots of emotional energy. 
How yeah. did this, how did this people, how did these people manage to keep their emotional energy up, especially in the moments of despair? Ah, so I'm, I'm going to share um, a great story, which is in the book of Dr. Bob Lefkowitz. Dr. Bob Lefkowitz is a Nobel prize winner in chemistry. He won the Nobel prize in 2012. And he was during the Vietnam war. If you were a physician, you had two choices. You can go to war or you can work for the public health service, right? You could work for a place like the CDC or the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. And these were really coveted positions to get because they didn't want to go to the Vietnam War. And Dr. Bob Lefkowitz got one of those roles at the at the NIH doing research. And I don't know if anyone here has ever done basic science research, but you have more days of failure than success where nothing works. And this can go on and on and on for years. And he was just despondent. He said, nothing is working. Absolutely nothing is working. And my time here is almost over. Um, And his mentor said to him, you know, the difference between a average guy and a really successful guy well, for the average guy, it may work out 1% of the time, but for a very successful guy, it might work out 2% of the time. So you see the mentor's role obviously is to help you with your career, but it's also there to help with the psychosocial support. And those mentors are your cheerleaders because what happens, one of the reasons that we get that emotional drainage is we're so invested, we're so deep inside the jar, we can't even read the label. We don't have perspective. And we need those other people who can give us that perspective. So that's how they got their, their you know, juiced up with their, um, that rigor, that, that cheerleading that they got from their mentor. They also learned how to leverage peak performance hours, which is figure out the time of the day when you are most productive and do your deep cognitive work at that time. So what do I mean by that? You heard of the habit, wake up at 5 a.m., you'll get more done. It's not waking up at 5 a.m. that's going to make you successful. If you wake up at 5 a.m., but you are on social media all day long, you have just wasted that time. I happen to be a very early riser. I usually wake up at around 5 a.m. My morning hours are the most productive hours of my day, which means I save it for my deep focus work, which in my case is a lot of writing and editing. I don't do passive tasks such as Zoom meetings, responding to emails, looking at social media during those peak performance hours because I would be burning daylight. Instead, I save it for those hours when I'm a little bit more sluggish, which for me is around two, three o'clock. And that's why if you can shift your day and control your calendar in that way, you will see that you will be much more productive and much happier because you can get into what we call in psychology, a state of flow. A state of flow is you're so deeply invested in your work, time sort of stands still. You're not tired, you're not hungry, you don't need to go to the bathroom. You're appropriately challenged in the work and that is why you're also at your happiest. I get up at five, I only require like five, five and a half hours sleep. How many, how many hours of sleep do you require? Oh, no, I, I, I need my sleep. <laughs> look, it's uh, I'm older than I look. That takes some uh, it takes some uh, sleep to get there. 
No, you look great. Um, by the way, the book I was thinking about was Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I love all his books, but that book was mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the next question we have from the audience. In your research, have you been able to establish a correlation between one subconscious mindset and success? Say that again. So have you been able to establish a correlation between one subconscious and their mindset and success? So how much does the subconscious, you know, affect your ability to be successful? Yeah, I didn't look at it from the lens of the subconscious. Um, I think it's more a role of how do you see yourself when faced with a challenge? Um, And I think they are very much in control of that. Um, So I think it's more a role of what is in their consciousness. And they work with a lot of people to bring out the unconscious into the conscious. Yeah, I think so. I think so as well. Uh, Here's the next question from the audience. What role does confidence play for high achievers? Are they all naturally confident or do some have to uh, work on their confidence in order to be successful? I'm going to ask that first, then we'll ask the rest of the question. Um, I'm going to let you guys in on a secret. Everybody in the world has something in their life that they are not confident about. Everybody, everybody lacks confidence in something. And usually what happens is we we try to do a lot of smoke and mirrors to cover it up. But in the case of these high achievers, if there's something that they're not confident in, they will outwork everybody in order to get to what their baseline is that they are comfortable with it. So I think we're, we're all a little, um, we all have those areas in our lives, but I think it's how they approach. Remember that second element of success is how you approach challenges. I can also tell you that they all have imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is when you get a big accomplishment and you think somebody's going to take it away or it's not real, or they're going to realize that I'm a fake. And they have a great team around them to help keep them grounded and to help them see that, no, they really earned this. They really earned this. So if you remember Scott Hamilton, the skater skater who did those backflips on the ice. So remember, I told you, I always ask the the Olympians if I could see their medals um, when I'm done. And he said, I don't have them. I said, what do you mean you don't have them? He said, I gave them all away. I said, what do you mean you gave them all away? He said, I gave them all away to the figure skating hall of fame. It was just too suffocating to have them at home. And why do you say that? Because you always feel like you have to live up to that. If, if you as a human, the only way you consider yourself successful is by that accomplishment. Well, what happens the following year? What do you do next? So to keep themselves grounded, they don't assign their success based on their accomplish. And they all said to me, that's a chapter in my life, not the entire story. But they take those same methods onto whatever their next goal is. And that's why you see so many Olympians, actually so many um, athletes very often, 
when they get a big accomplishment, some crash and burn, right? They're in the newspapers for all the wrong reasons. They start having substance abuse, alcoholism, you know, they gain a hundred pounds, all of these things. But then you have others who are going on to their next great goal. So Scott Hamilton, who we just talked about in his post-Olympic life, yeah, he's a, you know, he was a commentator for NBC, but now, you know, he's beaten cancer three times. He is now, uh, he started a foundation to raise money to research and treat cancer. And that is his next goal. And when I met with him over the summer, he is all in on this with that same focus and that same tenacity and that same push that he did for his figure skating. And that's why he's going to be great at it. What aren't you confident at and how did you overcome it for yourself? <laughs> how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> what? So what am I not confident in? Um, I, uh, from a materialistic way, um, I usually wear all black because I know how to match that. And I think it's the most slimming and I'll throw on a colorful scarf and we're done. Um, I am not confident at all that I can pull off certain looks. Um, I am also an academic in an Ivy league institution. I am surrounded by brilliant people who are always smarter than me. And I always feel that I am not smart enough, not producing enough, not working hard enough, um, which I think is an issue for for a lot of academics. Um, But I try every day to make it better than the day before. That is, I spent 10 years at Wharton. I think that's true at at these kinds of schools because you're at Columbia, right? I'm at Cornell now. No, I mean Cornell. Well, Cornell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very true at those schools. And people yeah. are constantly feeling the imposter syndrome. Uh, it's real. There. Yeah, for Can sure. I tell you, a, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Yeah. So um, Thinkers 50, which ranks the top management thinkers in their gala last year, um, I was ranked, I got the Radar Award, which is, um, ranks me as the number one emerging management thinker in the world. The reason I'm sharing it is because it comes it comes with this incredible piece, this like a trophy, which is heavy, very heavy. And I left it in the box for months when it came in because I was convinced they made a mistake. And they were going to ask me to ship it back. I was convinced for months that that was the case. And every time I saw the the leaders of Thinkers 50, I'd say, you sure you didn't make a mistake? You sure you don't need it back? And they assured me that, no, this is legit. So I've gotten certificates and diplomas and awards in the past, which are in a box somewhere. But this is the only one I have on display and it's in my home office, not in my work office, because I'm not that brave yet. But it's in my home office to remind me that imposter syndrome can be a sign of an achievement and it should not be a trigger of stress. And that's why I keep it out. Awesome. The second part of this uh, person's question is, do you have any advice for leaders on how to assess 
confidence in their followers and how to help them improve it? So I think when somebody is confident, you will see them working at something and it comes with some sort of ease. But it's really when you start to talk to them about what they're doing. When I am talking to someone, I am staring at them, literally staring at their face and their body language. Because you know, when you are talking to somebody who loves what they're doing, they can't imagine doing anything else. Their whole face lights up. All the stress from their body just melts away. That's when you know they're onto something. And even if they're not 100% confident in how to do it, they love it so much that they're willing to do what that astronaut did. It's not a question of if, it's a question of how. And that is what they want to focus on. So um, that is what you want to look for, for those, what I call those face lights up moment when you talk to someone. And when that happens, what I want to encourage you to do, you want to push them a little outside their comfort zone because that is where the true learning occurs. If we keep doing the things that we're always comfortable and confident in doing, we're going to start getting lazy because it becomes too easy. But when you start to push people outside of their comfort zone, that's when they need to start stepping it up. But I also caution you, you want to provide a certain amount of what we call scaffolding. It's that safety net. You want them to be a little uncomfortable, but you don't want them to feel like they are drowning. And the amount of challenge and the amount of scaffolding that people will need is very different because we're not all the same. What might be easy for me might be a challenge for you, but it could be vice versa as well. So we will need something very different. So look for those face lights up moment, give them those stretch assignments, push them outside their comfort zone and give them scaffolding. So many of us are parents listening to this. And I'm wondering, what did you do with your three kids? I mean, how do you get them to essentially maximize their potential and enjoyment? I think um, if you're in the Gotian household, there's no choice, but dinner becomes professional development sessions. (laughs) I am sure they hate it, but I am sure that one day they will thank me. Because I am sharing lessons that I have learned from people like Coach Kerr and people like Tony Fauci and people like Dr. Peggy Whitson. And when you get lessons from those people firsthand before the book is ever written, and I'm always interviewing new people, there are lessons to be learned there. So imagine I could tell my kids when they're in high school, when you're faced with a challenge, it's not a question of if, it's a question of how. I know you can solve this problem. What you have to figure out is how to solve the problem. And I think one of the things that I have taught my kids is that you need to work really, really hard because you're going to be surrounded by people that work really hard, but you need to show that you are willing to work hard and think differently and make connections that other people aren't yet seeing. And if you can that's, do that repeatedly, you'll shine. I, that's what I tell my kids. My oldest used to say, stop treating me like a consulting client. I <laughs> said, my job is to help you think through problems so you can do it on your own. Now she has a global communications company and she's very glad I did it the way as opposed to just telling her the answer, showing how to figure out 
how to do yeah. that. When I was at Wharton and at Penn, they had a program to teach people how to be resilient because these really, really smart high achievers also have a high rate of committing suicide because they hit the wall or they were the smartest in their high school yeah. and now they're not the smartest. Yeah. What do you advise people who are high achievers who also can easily fall into this trap and end their own lives? So I am not a psychiatrist and I'm not a psychologist. So I don't want anyone um, what to seek this as this. medical advice. Yeah. Um, what we know is that these people have not failed often and they haven't been challenged in this way before. And they were at the top of their class. And now all of a sudden you're surrounded by other people who were at the top of their class. And half the people at Harvard are in the bottom half of the class. And that's very new for them. They, they, they don't quite yet know how to deal with that. But you know what? The, the path to success is filled with a lot of failure. And that's why I am always interested, not in the tip of the iceberg, but what's below the waterline. And that's why I want to start being very transparent about what's below the waterline because people are way too focused on the success and they're totally missing out what it takes to get there. So I think being transparent and sharing the stories Right, sharing the stories of of Dr. Whitson who had to reapply for ten years makes that normal, and I think that is really important to understand. And I think you need to surround yourself. All the high achievers surrounded themselves with not one but a team of mentors, and these were the people who really could pick them up and offer support, and most importantly, offer perspective when they really need it. Because too often these people are trying to go about it alone. They've gotten this far alone, right? That doesn't work anymore. Every Olympic athlete has a coach, every single one. Good I'm enough for the Olympians, good enough for me. I'm fascinated by failure and how people get beyond it. So um, Ronda Rousey was the first great woman's champion MMA. And when she finally, when she finally lost, she talked about that she felt like committing suicide. She let everybody down. She couldn't get even back in the ring. And I thought, you're not really a true champion if you can't overcome it. And all the people in her world, the MMA world champions said, you're bound to lose. There's always somebody bound to be better yeah. than you on that particular day or whatever. You just yeah. got to dust yourself off and, and get back in it. And she never really, she got her butt kicked again the next time. But that's because she already had psyched herself out. How do you yeah. get beyond that and don't psych yourself out? Because she was a world-class athlete. No reason she couldn't have won again at the very top. But she really had mentally been broken by this loss. Yeah, and I think they have too much riding on it and their whole identity right. is based felt. on their yeah. success. Yeah, and they, they don't know who they are without that identity. I had a um, one of the lessons that I share in the book was shared with me with a former um, officer from the Delta forces in the army. And he said, when you are faced with a challenge, you need to ask yourself, what's the worst that would happen? The worst that would happen is somebody would die. If nobody dies, everything else is gravy. Uh, so just uh, avoid somebody dying and you're already winning. 
That's what I say. My, my kids will tell you, that's what I say around the house. Nobody died. It's no big deal. That's right. Everything yeah. else is fixable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's exactly my outlook. Uh, a question from the audience, and this is kind of long here. Many athletes have a life after top level sport and business. The mindset that one has acquired on the sports journey does not change anymore. As a three-time Olympian in swimming, I found it very difficult in life after. Oh, wow. This person's an Olympic athlete. Uh, uh, Eva Geisling, I guess that's how you pronounce her name. You still have extremely high expectations of yourself. Uh, for me, I'm very rarely satisfied with my performance. I've learned that I can always do better. Life as an athlete was easier than it is today. I used to have a clear and easily measurable goals, improved time. This clarity no longer exists today. That's why I find my mindset a hindrance from time to time. Have you heard similar issues and how have high performers dealt with them? Yes, absolutely. First of all, I am so excited that we have a three-time Olympian swimmer here. That is fantastic. Hey, uh, we should definitely chat offline. Um, so in, ter in terms of, the, uh, you know, I think you gave yourself the answer right there. When you are an Olympian, it's very clear. It's very structured. There's a goal to hit and you have a plan of how to hit that goal. And this is what you're experiencing is the same thing that a lot of military experience when they retire from the military and now they're civilians, right? It's a different world. But it sounds to me like you need to take that same approach that you had as an Olympian. What is the goal and what is the plan to hit that goal? And what can I do today to get me closer to it, to get me closer to that goal? I have my um, goals. They fit on a three by three post-it note. And I have them on the light right on my desk. And every day I'm asked to do something, I look at it and I say, is this going to get me closer or further from that goal? And every day I would take steps to help me meet that goal. And guess what? I met that goal two years ahead of schedule. And now I needed to update those goals. And now the second time that you do that, it's a hell of a lot easier because now you have a plan. You have a very specific goal that you can articulate, which means you can make a plan to help you achieve that goal. If that's what you did as an Olympian, you do the exact same thing in the civilian world, and you'll see that you will start achieving those goals. You've uh, done it before. Yeah, Thanks yeah. very much. Really helpful. Thank, well, you. thank you. Thank you for joining us. And I'll connect the two of you if you send me, uh, I'll send your email, I'll send Ruth's email to you. Um, what lessons, a question from the audience, what lessons have you implemented in your own life after researching all these successful people? I was patient lesson. zero. <laughs> <laughs> I was patient zero. Once I was able to make these connections, that's when I realized that success can be learned. And I have a doctorate in adult learning and leadership, which means I know how to teach this. But before I can teach it, I had to learn it myself. So I literally was patient zero and I started to implement these things in my own life. And that's when the book came out. The next book is going to come out. The TED Talk is coming out. The Thinkers 50 came out. The Forbes 50 over 50 came out because I was implementing those things, because I was able to achieve those things and create that ripple effect. But I, I want to caution Success is not about these awards. 
when I, the first part of my research was to identify success because we don't have a definition. It's like pornography. We know it when we see it, but we can't really identify it. I know that success is different based on who you ask. And it's definitely different, uh, different based on gender and rank, but that's a whole separate talk. There's an academic paper I can send you if you really want to geek out about it. But really what success is, what I learned from my research, is that you have to do three things. You, you have to achieve something that changes the way we do things, think about things, or process things. That's the first thing. The second thing is, as you start rising in the ranks, you are pulling other people up with you. And when you have reached the apex of your career, the, the, your peak performer, now you need to share the wealth and start training that next generation. And you're either doing that in one-on-one or a one-to-many model. Usually you're, you're mentoring other people. And once I realized that, I doubled down on that in everything that I do. So I work to create that paradigm shift in the way we think about success and the way we approach success. I definitely believe not only is the pie big enough for all of us, I believe that together we can create a bigger pie. And I am all about that. I am all about collaborating. I am all about sharing. I am all about giving the spotlight to other people and mentoring. I've mentored thousands of people over my career. And that's probably, I think, besides my kids, my best achievement. (laughs) That's fantastic. Another question is, how do the successful people deal with the aftermath of failure and the emotional drainage of failure? And we just talked a little bit about that with Mount Ronda Rousey. But from your book, what what have you learned uh, about how they deal with failure and overcome it? What's their strategies? So failure is just a data point right? What is it that you can learn from this episode that didn't quite work your way? And if you look at most of the people who failed, and I I actually just put this on an Instagram story today, um, it was those failures that eventually led to their huge success, right? Nothing was handed to them. There was usually a major challenge. I don't know if Dr. Peggy Whitson would have been such an incredible astronaut if she got in on her first try. So I think that is definitely one of the things that we learned. And I think what we can also learn from failure besides the data point is how we're looking at the feedback that we receive. And I think we need to start looking at that feedback the way dancers and musicians and elite athletes look at it. It's not a critique of performance. It's an opportunity for enhancement because one tiny change in the way you do things can mean the difference between you losing and hitting the podium. So they crave that. They need that. If you look at all of the athletes, how often are they rushing to their coach after something happens? There's a reason for that. And I think we need to start looking at feedback in that way, not as critique, but as an opportunity for enhancement. Um question from the audience. You just answered my question on how your interviewees define success for themselves. 
uh, in there or, or, or your opinion, is success more a process or more of an endpoint or both? <laughs> so uh, most of them do not think that they are actually high achievers. And, and I'll share a story that happened. Um, this is a very funny story. I had many book launch events, but I had one just for the people who are in the book because I knew all of them, but they didn't know each other. So I thought it would be fun if we got, you know, these astronauts and uh, Nobel Prize winners, et cetera, together. So one of the astronauts, about an hour before the, the book launch party, it was virtual. He said, oh, will Dr. Tony Fauci be there? And Dr. Fauci's in the book. And I said, well, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> this is when Omicron hit. I said, I think he's a little busy right now. I, I'm not expecting him to come. I said, oh, but this Nobel Prize winner will be there. And he said, oh, Nobel Prize winner. Now that's a high achiever. And I'm thinking, you're an astronaut. You went in a tin can to space. I think you count as a high achiever. <laughs> so a month later, I tell the story to the Nobel Prize winner. And he said, you know, this is really fascinating because I know a lot of Nobel Prize winners. We get together, we have all these events. So to me, it's no big deal. He said, but I don't know any astronauts. And I think they're, you know, at the top of the, the, the pyramid, right? And that's when I realized that when your environment are people who are just like you, that becomes your baseline, right? So for the astronaut who to this day, we were just on a call on Wednesday, he doesn't think of himself as a high achiever. And the Nobel Prize winner doesn't think of himself that way because he's surrounded by others who are just like them. So um, that was the answer. Did I answer that question? Yeah. How do they see themselves? Yeah. Let me see. I want to make sure I got and, the whole question. And is success more a process or more of an endpoint or both? Oh, they will tell you that they never got there. So it's always a process. There's always more to do. This person who wrote that is a world-class musician who is driven, beyond driven, and is super successful in what she does. Another question from the audience. As a musician and a student of music, I'm always fascinated by artists who achieve a high level of success in a particular style then feel the compelling need to leave it behind and try something new even if it fails. I'm thinking of David Bowie, Miles Davis, Prince, et cetera. Did this notion come out in your research? So what's interesting, what did come to me was that they were no longer in love with it anymore, that first element of success. They were good at it, but that passion just wasn't there anymore. And that's why they switched. Um, a great example of this is... Um, Kayla, uh, blanking on her last name, Harrington, who twice won the gold medal in women's judo for the United States, never been done before. And she'd been doing judo since she was six years old. And she said, it was my first love, but now I have a new love. And now she does mixed martial arts. Um, and has gotten all the big belts and stuff. But she said, I just didn't love it that way anymore. 
And I often ask people, when did you know it was time to stop? And they said, when I stopped loving it, when it became more of a chore than a love, right? So it wasn't about, I wasn't as good as I used to be. It's, it's just becoming a chore and I don't want it to be a chore. I, I read a biography on Bruce Lee and what was interesting was he didn't mind losing. He mm-hmm. said, that's just the only way you're going to learn is if you lose. And mm-hmm. so if he lost, he would ask the person to teach them the move. If he beat them, he would offer to teach the person he beat how he beat them. Yeah. And he said, that's all it really matters at the end of the day is the constant intellectual learning and constantly just getting better at whatever your craft is. And I thought it was pretty interesting that he wasn't defeated by losing, that losing yeah. was a learning opportunity for him. They they all do. And if, if you think of... Um, you know, all these other people who have achieved these great things, it's, I met the goal I set out for myself. And if I loved it, I would have stayed with it, but I didn't love it now the way I did at the beginning. And that's when I knew it was time to move on. And that's the same with the scientists and the, um, the athletes and the astronauts. Um, I actually share the story of Nicole Stott, who's one of the astronauts who went twice into space and was thinking if she should go a third time. And we talk about the questions that she asked herself. Um, and at the end, she decided not to do it. Um, but it was it was for those exact same reasons. I always thought it was interesting. I think Pete Rose played 24 years in Major League Baseball. And we think as kids, oh, my God, who wouldn't want to play 24 years? But as an adult, you realize that intellectually, you can get pretty bored with doing this over yeah. and over again. And the fact that he could play at a high level for 24 yeah. years is pretty impressive. Same with Tom yeah. Brady to play at the at, be at the very top all that time and That's keep right. your interest without losing and be willing to work that hard for it. I think that's really an amazing achievement. Question from Absolutely. the audience. People who are in your, I notice I've prepared all these questions. But we're, we're, <laughs> but that means they're some, paying attention. So I love it. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> People who are neurodiverse have great challenges every day. They look at more failures than success in their life every day. As a parent of a neurodiverse person, what suggestions do you have for me in mentoring him and becoming successful? I think it goes back to the same elements. Can you explain what neurodiverse means? Do you want me to explain it or you want the person to explain it? No, for you to explain. So the neurodiverse is uh, for people who don't, who are not processing things in the traditional way. And this can be a variety of things. One of the most common that you hear about is ADD, the attention attention deficit, language processing, all of those kinds of executive functioning, people who are processing things differently because our world is is made and manufactured for the masses. Um, But there are incredible, incredible benefits um, and strengths that people who are neurodiverse have. They can be hyper-focused on something. And they could be super, super good at it. And I think as people who support them, we have to realize how can we leverage that for them 
and minimize the distractions that may um, may negatively impact that. And then I think it's the same for elements. So we know what they are interested in. They usually make that pretty clear. Um, and we want to help them overcome challenges. Again, we have to help with the minimizing of the noise and teaching them how to do that. The third one is might be a little bit harder. Go back to the techniques that made you who you are today, right? So you want to be that support. And the last one is the lifelong learning. Now, if reading books, right, we heard Mark Cuban and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, they read for three to eight hours a day. If somebody who's neurodiverse, or if you're not neurodiverse, but you don't have the time or you don't have the patience or the focus to read um, that much, there are so many other ways you can do it, right? You can listen to TED Talks, you can listen to podcasts, you can go on webinars such as this one. Hopefully everyone's learning something new today. There are different ways to absorb new information. And that is the key. And the key is really just to find the one that works for you. Another question from the audience. I told you I'm going to get three questions in and and the rest would be by the audience. And that's what's happened. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Do people in the creative world like artists and musicians define success and go on about it differently compared to scientists who win Nobel Prizes or, or business people? Nope, exactly the same way. And that's what made it so fascinating to me. Um, I interviewed um, uh, a Tony Award winner and a Tony Award producer, um, Vicki Clark. Victoria Clark was a Tony Award winner. And I asked her about her warmups, for example, right? That third element of success, go back to your basics. She said, I've been doing the same warmups for 40 years, right? And she told me how she how she warms up her voice and how she does it with the um, vowels instead of consonants. And she said, the only difference is I've had to adjust it as I got older. So I, I, I think she was singing lower. She would um, have, it was harder to keep her endurance going. So she would practice singing while jogging. So she told me how she adjusted it, but the, the cycle was exactly the same. So whether you're a creative or a, I don't know what the opposite of a creative is. It's not a not creative. Um, but if you are the opposite of the creative, then it's still the same The same four elements and approaches. Uh, here's a question that I have. <laughs> Friend uh, mentors was a topic, and you mentioned uh, Wharton, Dean, uh, er- Erica James, who we might have on the show because they've reached out about her book. And her mm-hmm. best friend, who I think co-wrote that book with her, That's Dr. Right. Lynn Wooten, president of uh, Simmons University. Mentoring and friendship can be tricky along with collaboration on a professional venture. How do they make it work and what can we learn from them? Yeah, so um, it, it's very interesting. And I think you should have them as guests. They wrote a great book called The Prepared, Leadership, the Prepared Leader. They, they specialize in crisis management. So uh, Dean... Erica Janes and President Lynn Wooten met in their mid-20s when they were graduate students at the University of Michigan. They were both getting their doctorate, and they were sitting in this big auditorium that had more seats than students. And they happened to sit together, and they quickly became fast friends. Now, this is when they were in their mid-20s. 
they still talk to each other five times a week on their way to work. They are what I call friend tours. They're friends, but they're also each other's peer mentors. And this really helped them because throughout their life, obviously they do um, research together on crisis leadership, but they also were going through job searches at the same time. And they started their latest jobs as president of Simmons University and dean of Wharton on the same day, July 1st, 2020. And what it, what was that like to start the new roles? They both happen to be African-American women. So what, what is that like? And what are the pressures associated with that? And how are you bringing diversity? They said they wanted to bring it without hitting people over the head with it. So how could they do that? And they strategized together. So they met in the mid-20s, but remember, peers rise together. So you're not going to be in your mid-20s sitting in that auditorium for the rest of your life. And it's who your friends are that tells you about your environment. So remember the, the story of that astronaut who really only knows other astronauts and the Nobel Prize winner who really only knows other Nobel Prize winners. So I think there, there are great lessons there. Um, and that's why I call them friend tours because they're friends. They go on mommy-daughter vacations together. They have kids around the same age, um, but they're also professional colleagues and each other's mentors. Friend tour. But by the way, do you find the people who are super successful that their kids, because they could teach the lessons to their kids about how to be successful, or are the kids crushed by the weight of the parents' success? <laughs> Look, the, the the parents can teach that the kids want to learn, right? Yeah. Both my parents were teachers at one point. I was never going to become a teacher. I'm a professor now. Yeah, I I said the same. My dad was a <laughs> business guy, an entrepreneur. I am. My daughter said I was featured on NPR, and and my daughter, my oldest, said I will never do this. And now she's got a global communications company. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, don't say that. <laughs> uh, what kind What kind of life partners do high achievers need to maximize their potential? And from your research, what do they typically look for in a life partner? I didn't ask them that. Um, because that could go down some, you know, paths I didn't want to go down. Um, but I think it's, it's about surrounding yourself with people who can understand what it's like to be that hungry for something, because most people don't understand that. And it could become a very lonely world. So it needs to be somebody who understands what that's like and what it takes and what these people are willing to do and not do and sacrifice and not sacrifice and be there for each other. That's not always easy. Uh, about a third of the way through the book, you write about perseverance, which you've talked about quite a bit today, which is probably the most critical attribute you need to succeed. What are the ingredients required to be good at perseverance? Is there one story in the book, which you had many like Skier, Bonnie Blair, and uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg that illustrate this the best? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So uh, long track speed skater, Bonnie Blair. Do you guys remember her from the Olympics? Um, she came with the Blair Bunch, right? Yeah. She was from the Midwest. Um so first she started out as a swimmer, by the way, um, and she was good at it. And that goes back to, you can be good at something and not enjoy it. And then she did 
uh, short track speed skating. And then it was a fluke by chance without the right gear. She tried out for long track speed skating. And eventually she found her happy place, found her groove. And that was great. At the time, her main competitors were the East Germans. This is when we had a separated Germany. And, you know, before the Olympics, there's many, many, many other competitions along the way. And she said, you know, she'd see them back. It's not called backstage, but behind the rink. And she said their thighs were like tree trunks. Yeah, they were like men. And she said, I could work out all day, all night. I will never have their strength. Never. I'm just not built that way. So she said, can't, I can't beat them on power. I'm going to beat them on technique. So she went back to her original coach that taught her the long track speed skating techniques. And she perfected it. She outworked everyone. And she perfected it. And when the time came, she won the race. And that's how the Americans beat the East Germans and won the gold medal in long track speed skating. Ruth, that's a great way to end the show. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time. We're going to look forward to your next book. I know a lot of people are going to want to buy this book um, for sure. And boy, would I love to be invited to that party (laughs) when you bring these folks together. Who doesn't want to go to that party? And everybody feels that. Oh, Eve already has it. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. And I see Lena there. Now she has it. Yeah. Well, enjoy your weekend, everybody. Ruth, thanks again. You were fabulous. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.